Now, I always felt that it could be resolved that she would have to be somewhere, that she couldn't have just disappeared like that. And the fact that it was said that she jumped from the bridge, that wasn't convincing for me. So I, I just thought, well, she has to be somewhere. She can't just have disappeared. In this episode of The Vanishing of Vivian Cameron, we move on to the morning of September 23, 1986. As the people on Phillip Island wake to greet the new day, one resident doesn't wake up and never will again. Her body is about to be discovered. small hours of Tuesday the 23rd of September, Fergus Cameron had been dropped off at his sister Marnie Kansas' house and spent the remainder of the night in her guest bedroom. He had been injured the night before in an attack by his wife Vivian. She had smashed a wine glass into the side of his head, then stabbed him three times in the back with a broken glass. Marnie had minded the two Cameron children while their parents were at the hospital. Marnie was due to work an 8am shift at the same hospital that morning. Before she left for work, she went in and spoke to her injured brother at 7am. Not only did she want to check he was okay, she also wanted to remind him to ring Vivian to see how she was and also to ring the local doctor to make a follow-up appointment to get his injuries checked. Marnie left for work a little after 7.30am. Since none of us live our lives by watching the clock constantly, time estimates can vary. They certainly do in this case. While Marnie said she chatted with Fergus at 7am, her husband Ian remembered things differently. He told police, I was up the next morning at approximately 7am. I checked on Fergus and found him to be heavily asleep. I attended to some farm duties and gave Marnie a cup of tea at 7.20am. At 7am, nurse Lisa Price, the nurse who attended Vivian and Fergus Cameron the night before, got to the hospital for her 7am shift. Marnie was due to start at 8. She knew that Marnie knew about what happened the night before because she'd taken Vivian into the office to call her because she was minding the Cameron children. She wondered if Marnie would mention the night before. I was on a what we call a late early, so I'd worked a late shift the night before and then I was on at 7 o'clock the next morning. I was in charge of the shift the next morning and Marnie was the second person, the second nurse on that day. So Marnie was a friend, even though she was older than me, she was someone that I felt that I had a very close relationship to. I was very, very fond of Marnie. So I knew her well enough I would have thought to know if there was something different or she was upset or preoccupied or something and I just didn't. The next morning I never felt that she was any different than any of the other days that I had worked with her and I had known her, you know, for quite some time. 
Robin Dixon and her husband John, who had collected Vivian and Fergus's two children after the 3am phone call from Vivian, still had them the next morning. After the phone call from Vivian, they had heard nothing further from either of the Camerons. At 7.30am, Robin Dixon tried to ring Vivian, but there was no answer. Then she tried to ring Fergus Cameron's brother Donald and his wife Pam, but their phone was engaged. She kept trying and eventually got through to Donald Cameron 15 minutes later at 7.45. Robin told Donald that she was in a hurry to get to work, but she still had the Cameron children with her. First, she explained the 3am phone call to Donald, then he put his wife Pam on the phone for Robin to repeat the story to her. These are Robin Dixon's words. Donald said that he didn't know what I was talking about when I asked who was sick, and he put Pam on the phone to speak to me. I told Pam about the phone call from Viv at 3am, telling me that they were at the hospital. I told Pam that I still had the children and I had to get to work. Pam arranged for Donald to pick up the little one who's five years old and I was to take the older child with my children to the bus. The little one that Donald Cameron was picking up was Hugh, while the older boy that Robin Dixon would take to school with her was Dougald. Around the time Robin Dixon was talking to Donald and Pam about having the boys, Fergus and Donald's sister Marnie arrived at the hospital to prepare for her 8am shift. Considering the close friendship between her and Lisa Price, did she mention the night before to her? No, never did. She never asked me anything about the night before and so I just never mentioned it. Given that phone calls play a role in the unfolding events of the Phillip Island murder, a lot of people have asked over the years why the police didn't check phone records. But it wasn't like it is today with every phone call recorded and electronic tracking. In those days, the only phone calls that were registered were long-distance calls. No local call records were kept. This case might have had a different outcome if they had. I clarified this recently with Rory O'Connor, the homicide detective who investigated the Phillip Island murder. Were there phone records at the time because no. there's so many phone calls that where did they come from and who rang yeah. who? No, I can't, uh, I don't think there was any phone records at that particular time. I seem to recall that you only got on your phone bill that you rang, yeah. if you rang STD. Yeah, that's right. There wasn't, uh, really, it wasn't like mobiles these days. Because if you could have checked, you would have checked, wouldn't you? Yep. According to the family, there was a slowly dawning realisation that something was wrong. Pam Cameron later told the police she had tried to ring Vivian before she got the call from Robin Dixon and she too had wondered why no one answered the phone. That might account for the engaged signal that Robin got when she had first tried to call Donald and Pam Cameron. After Pam spoke to Robin, she rang Marnie and Ian Kansas' number straight away. These are Pam Cameron's words. I then phoned Marnie and Ian to find out if they knew what happened to Fergus and Viv. Fergus answered the phone and was not able to say very much and put me on to Ian. Ian informed me that there was a problem with Fergus and Viv and that Fergus was staying with him and that he'd tell me more later. 
I then informed Ian of my conversation with Robin Dixon and that Donald was going to pick up Hugh. At this stage, I was very cross with the response I got from Fergus and Ian and was very short to them both and hung up. Ian said that he had taken the phone call from Pam. Here are his words. I continued on with other duties and took a phone call from my sister-in-law Pamela at approximately 7.45 or 7.50. She asked, what's going on? I told her that Fergus and Vivian had had a difference of opinion last night and that Fergus was at my place and Vivian at home with the children. I then told her I would talk to her when I saw her and left the phone. Pam Cameron said she felt sorry for her short tone with her brothers-in-law and called back. Fergus answered and the two had a longer conversation. Here's how she described it. While Donald went to pick up Hugh, I decided that I should apologise to Ian and Fergus for my shortness on the phone. I phoned again and Fergus answered the phone. He informed me that he and Viv had a terrible argument which resulted in him having to go to the hospital but he was all right now. He then became very emotional and said that he was worried about two people and on me inquiring who, he said Vivian and Beth. I know Elizabeth Barnard as Beth who worked for us on our family properties. I can't recall the exact conversation but I inquired of Fergus why he was concerned for Viv and Beth but he did not give me an answer. I then formed the opinion at that stage that Viv and Fergus's argument had concerned Beth. Fergus didn't take the matter any further, and during that conversation, Donald had come home and stated that Fergus's car was in the garage. I tried to reassure Fergus that Viv was probably still at home and informed him of what Donald had just told me. Pamela Cameron said that after the phone call, she left for work. By this time, around 8.30 in the morning, Marnie had started her shift at the Worley Hospital and was changing beds in the ward with Lisa Price, getting patients washed and fed. The normal routine on that early shift is to actually go around and start making the beds, getting people up, having their showers and just, you know, getting them organised for the day. And the phone rang and I remember it was quite early in the shift because we hadn't done many of the beds that we'd go around making together. And I answered the phone. Marnie stayed in the room where we were making the bed. I went to the office, answered the phone, and it was Donald. And I know Donald and Fergus well enough to know them by the sound of their voice. I don't know whether Donald announced himself or not, but I certainly knew it was Donald. And he said, "Um, I need to speak to Marnie. I went back and got Marnie and Marnie answered uh, the phone and I left the room and uh, after a few minutes Marnie came out and said "Um, there's there's been a, I think she said there's been a family emergency or there's a situation I have to go and I have to go immediately and she left. What time was Lisa Price's best estimate about when the phone call came in? Marnie would have started at 8. Um... Between 8.30 and 9. Anne Davy was also working at the hospital that morning. She had started at 8am and she too put the time of the call around 8.30am. On the uh, Tuesday morning, I recall when I was in the office, the phone went 
and Marnie Cairns left straight away and, and went home. I didn't know what the circumstances were, but she certainly headed for home after the phone call. I'd imagine it would be after eight because I didn't go to the hospital till uh, at seven. I was always eight, eight thirty. Probably when I just got to work, which would probably be about eight fifteen, eight twenty, you know, eight thirty around that time. Two days later, when Marnie spoke to detectives, she remembered the phone call differently. She said it was Fergus who had called her at work, not Donald. She put the time much later than Anne Davy and Lisa Price. Anne Davy doesn't recall Marnie making phone calls, trying to ring Beth. She recalls Marnie leaving straight away. Here's what Marnie told police. At about 9.30am, I received a call at work from Fergus, telling me that Vivian had phoned Robin Dixon at about 3.15am and asked her to look after the children as they were by themselves in the house and that he, Fergus, was concerned about Beth. He then asked me to ring her number and let her know. I phoned Beth, but there was no answer, so I then rang Fergus back and told him. He was obviously very concerned and worried and asked me to come home. I then arranged this with the matron. I drove home and found Fergus sitting at the kitchen table looking out the window. He said... I know something terrible's happened, or words to that effect. We waited, and I kept trying the Barnard's number, but there was no answer. Fergus told me that he had asked Donald and Ian to go over and see if Beth was all right. So Anne Davey and Lisa Price both remember Marnie took the phone call somewhere between 8.30 and 9am at the hospital, whereas Marnie recalled it as being about 9.30am. Lisa Price said it was Donald Cameron who called the hospital. However, Marnie said it was Fergus Cameron. But in his statement, Fergus said he was on the phone at 8.30am to his sister-in-law Pam, so it couldn't have been Fergus. If Lisa Price is correct and it was Donald Cameron who called Marnie at work, he could have called before he went to collect Hugh from Robin Dixon, but that might have been too early Or he could have called after the phone call between Pam and Fergus, possibly around 8.45am. But if either of those times are correct, what did Donald Cameron have to say to Marnie at this stage to call her home from work? Yes, they knew that Vivian had called the Dixons in the middle of the night to collect the children, and yes, Vivian wasn't answering the phone. Was that enough to bring Marnie home from work? Why did they need her home at this stage. Quick, Marnie, come home. Vivian's not answering her phone. It doesn't seem urgent enough to get a nurse off the ward. It certainly wasn't urgent enough for Donald's wife, Pam Cameron, not to go to work. Because of the confusing timeframes, it's important to note here something Marnie's husband, Ian Cairns, would later tell police. He went to his brother-in-law, Fergus's farm, and saw the family Holden that Vivian normally drove. He also found the Land Cruiser missing. Here are Ian's words. On the following morning, I drove to Fergus's shearing shed to collect the Land Cruiser in order to carry hay to the livestock. It was not there, and I assumed that Vivian had used it to take Dougald, their son, to the bus stop to catch the school bus. 
It was not Vivian's normal practice to use the Land Cruiser, and I wondered if there was anything wrong with her car. I therefore checked it. The key was in the ignition, and I noticed that the petrol gauge was reading empty, so I decided to fill it and check the car was ready for Vivian's journey to Melbourne. I suspected that there was something wrong, and I returned home. So at 8.30am, Fergus was on the phone to Pam Cameron. Pam said that during this conversation, her husband Donald had come home from picking up Hugh from Robin Dixon's and he had checked Vivian and Fergus's farm on the trip back and saw their car was still parked in its usual spot. Donald had simply looked up their driveway as he went past. He did not mention driving up the driveway and checking the shed to see if their other vehicle, a land cruiser the family used around the farm, was parked there. These are Fergus Cameron's words, but not his voice. At approximately 8.30am on Tuesday following, being 23rd of the 9th, 86, I received a telephone call from my sister-in-law, Pam Cameron, who said that the children had been picked up at 3.30am by Robin Dixon after a phone call from Vivian. This caused me grave concern as I recalled the threat made by Vivian the previous night outside the hospital. My anxiety was further increased when I was told that Vivian had taken the Land Cruiser, which was parked in the shearing shed. On hearing the Land Cruiser, Beth would automatically think it was me and open the door. The two people who drove the Land Cruiser were either Beth or myself. We can assume that this conversation would have taken around 10 minutes, or perhaps even longer, to incorporate Donald's arrival and the adding to the conversation of his information about the Holden being in its usual place. While Pam said he arrived home during the conversation, Donald said the phone call was made after he got home. These are Donald's words. After I got home, my wife Pam rang Marnie and Ian Cairns. Fergus, my brother, answered the phone and seemed very distressed and did not particularly want to communicate at this stage and handed the phone to Ian. Here's where things get a little confusing. Donald Cameron was just talking to Ian Cairns and Fergus and then he said Ian rang back to say that the Land Cruiser was missing. Donald also says that this phone call took place at 9.05am but it can't have because at that time he and Ian were at the police station. Donald Cameron later said, Ian Cairns phoned me back a short time later to say that the Land Cruiser was not parked in its usual spot in the machinery shed at Fergus's. The registered number of the Land Cruiser is CILS09. This phone call took place at approximately 9.05am. Ian told me that Beth Barnard should be told of the domestic that had taken place the night before between Fergus and Viv. This was told to him by Fergus and he was relaying the message to me from Fergus. At this point, Ian suggested that we both go to Rill, where Beth lives in McPhee's Road. A couple of minutes later, I picked up Ian at his home and saw Fergus at the back door of Ian's home very briefly and he appeared to be very distressed almost on the point of tears. Does that mean between the two conversations, the one where Donald came home from picking up Hugh and the one where Ian rang them back, 
that Ian Cairns drove up to Fergus and Vivian's house to check on the whereabouts of the Land Cruiser? Or had he checked earlier and forgotten to mention it? Ian said that it was Donald who told him about the Land Cruiser being missing. He also says that Donald rang him, not the other way around. Here are Ian's words. At home, I received a telephone call from my brother-in-law Donald Cameron and his wife, and we learned that Vivian and the Land Cruiser were both missing. Donald agreed to come to our house immediately. When he arrived, Fergus urged us to go to Elizabeth Barnard's house to tell her of the argument the previous night. While Donald Cameron doesn't mention ringing his sister Marnie at the hospital, if Lisa Price, the nurse who answered the phone to him, is correct, he must have called before he left to pick up Ian, which would have been before 9am. Before the days of mobile phones and instant communication, he would have had to have rung from a landline, and before he left home was the last chance he had. Which brings us to Donald setting off the Cairns farm. I've always wondered what he did with Vivian and Fergus's five-year-old son, Hugh, who he had earlier collected from Robin Dixon. He doesn't mention it, but I assume he must have dropped Hugh off to Fergus during this visit. Here's how he describes it. A couple of minutes later, I picked up Ian at his home and saw Fergus at the back door of Ian's home very briefly and he appeared to be very distressed, almost on the point of tears. We had no other further conversation with Fergus other than that we would call in at his place on the way to Beth's. There was nobody at Fergus and Viv's. I walked into their breakfast room and I called out and no one answered and I walked up the passage with Ian looking in every room and then left. Ian Cairns doesn't mention going to Vivian and Fergus's house even though Donald Cameron told detectives Ian had been with him at the time. Ian told the detectives that he and Donald had spoken to Fergus, who urged them to go to Beth's house and tell her about the previous night's argument. According to Ian, Fergus said, I am concerned for Beth. So we have Fergus's brother Donald and his brother-in-law Ian both going to check on Beth on behalf of a worried Fergus Cameron. Ian described what happened next. Donald and I then proceeded to Rill in the Toyota Hilux ute. I feared the worst had happened and suggested to Donald that we should go to the police first. However, we proceeded straight to Beth's house. We arrived at Beth's at approximately 9.10am and drove down the driveway and parked in the backyard. We observed that Beth's Toyota Ute was in a shed on our right and her white car in a carport on our left, and we believed Beth was at home. Donald proceeded from the car to the back door whilst I waited nearby. He opened the flywire door and knocked on the back door, which opened as he did so. He then called out, Anyone there? Or something like that. And getting no response, He took a couple of paces inside. I then heard him say something like, Oh God, the worst has happened. You'd better look. I then entered the back door and Donald indicated the first room on the left. I looked down and saw Beth, apparently in a sleeping bag, and she appeared to be dead. 
I glanced quickly around the room and it showed signs of a struggle, in particular blood on the bed and blood on the wall. Donald and I left the house and drove to Cal's police station where we spoke to Sergeant Ash and reported what we'd seen. According to Donald Cameron, after checking Vivian and Fergus's place and finding no sign of Vivian, they set off for Beth's place in Drill. These are his words. We drove immediately to Beth Barnard's farm in McPhee's Road and saw that the family utility was parked in its usual spot in the garage and saw that Beth's own private car was parked in the carport at the rear of the house. I walked to the door and knocked and I was aware that the lights were on on the porch. There was a flywire screen door shut, but the door immediately behind was open some six to eight inches. I called out and there was no response and pushed the door further open and there was no response within the house at all. I took one step inside and saw that the door to my left was wide open and inside the door, I saw Beth lying on the floor with a doona over. Her face was almost covered, but I still recognised her and she appeared to be dead. At the time of seeing her, she was on her back, face up. I yelled out, come here quick, the worst has happened, or something like that. We immediately left the house and both reported the matter to Sergeant Ash at the Cows Police Station. To give you an idea of the distances involved with the travel that Donald and Ian said they did, let's examine these one at a time. If they did go to Fergus's farm to check if Vivian was home, it is about half a kilometre up the road, maybe five minutes to drive there, park, search the house, get back in the car and on the road. The distance to Beth's house in Rill is around 12 kilometres, which in ideal conditions would be a 12-minute drive. It would take a couple of minutes to park, both men enter the house, find the body and hurry back to the car. From Beth's house to the Cowes police station is a 10-and-a-half-kilometre drive and it would take about 13 minutes. At best, this amount of travel, searching of Vivian's house and finding of the body, would take nearly 45 minutes. If they did all the things they said they did, and it did take 45 minutes, that means Donald and Ian would have had to have left Ian's place by around 8.20. But at that time, Donald hadn't even arrived back after picking up Hugh. Fergus put his arrival at 8.30am during his phone call to Pam. With the phone discussion about Vivian, then Pam leaving for work and Donald driving to Ian's, It seemed more like the two men couldn't have left until just before 9am. If Fergus is correct in his estimation, and the police are correct in their estimation that Donald and Ian arrived at the Cowes police station around 9.05, there simply wasn't time to have driven to all the places that they said they did. In discussing these time differences with the detective connected to the case, he said... So what? Do you think people go around noting the time of things? And in a way, he's absolutely right. We don't constantly notice the time of things. But it's also worth noting that Donald's statement is signed and dated 
at the Cowes Police Station at 12.50pm on Tuesday the 23rd of September, just hours after this happened. When my co-author Paul Daly and I interviewed Sergeant Cliff Ash for the book around 1992, he'd retired from the police force. From memory, he was running a milk bar or a general store at the time. He invited us into the back area and we sat at a table and took notes as he spoke. He filled in the human details missing from his short official statement. Once we move from the formal record to the lived experience, the scene takes shape. On Tuesday the 23rd of September, Cliff Ash had just returned to work after a holiday. Donald Cameron and Ian Cairns entered the Old Cows police station and Cliff asked how he could help them. He knew Donald and Ian. They were well known and in the cross-pollination that comes from living on a small island, locals met at community functions and on the golf course. There's been a domestic argument, muttered Donald Cameron. Cliff Ash told us that Donald couldn't seem to get to the point. Ash listened with growing impatience to his vague ramblings for 10 minutes about family fights and family conferences and about Donald's brother Fergus and his secret affair with a young female farmhand on his property, Beth Barnard. Ash told us that in the end, he cut Donald Cameron short, saying, Donald, exactly what are you trying to tell me? According to Ash, Donald Cameron replied, Um, it's Beth. I think she's not well. On the next episode of The Vanishing of Vivian Cameron. I stayed outside with Don and Ian when we got to the house and uh, the conversation was, you know, we were just talking, just general conversation. He bent down and pinched a corner of the quilt and carefully peeled it away, revealing a horror he'd never forget. They didn't seem to be upset. It wasn't until I was in the car that... Cliff said, I believe something's happened out there. 